Ladies and gentlemen, it is my distinguished pleasure this afternoon to again welcome you to the 2008 Yeshiva University Student Medical Ethics Society Conference. My name is Jonathan Panich. I'm a senior at Yeshiva University, a member of the Medical Ethics Society, and will be the moderator for today's session. We are privileged today to hear from Rabbi Zev Shostak. Rabbi Shostak is the Director of Pastoral Care at the Gerwin Jewish Nursing and Rehabilitation Center in Comac, Long Island. He is the founder and chair of the Gerwin's Ethics Panel and a senior fellow at the Institute for Medicine and Contemporary Society at the State University of New York at Stony Brook, where he lectures at the medical school. Today Rabbi, today, Rabbi Shostak will be speaking about an issue which undoubtedly every person in this room has somehow either personally or indirectly faced. Judaism views life as supremely precious, yet questions arise on how aggressively one must seek treatment or to what extent should one try to lengthen his or her life. In this coming session, we hope to answer these questions and provide a deep insight into the controversial issues which arise with the complexity of end-of-life patient care. I would like to remind everyone in the audience that in the back of the program guides there are pages allocated for notes if one wishes to use them. Also, I kindly ask that everyone turn off their cell phones and please be aware due to the size of the room that every noise is amplified. Therefore, if one must leave for any reason, please close the door slowly behind you so that it doesn't slam. We have allocated time at the end of the session for Q&A, so please hold all questions until the end. Rabbi Shostak has also requested that all personal shilas and questions be addressed to, personal, to their personal rabbin. I'm now honored to present to you Rabbi Zeth Shostak. Thank you very much, John. We lowered the volume here. Thank you very much, Jonathan. Um, it's an honor and privilege to be here today. And uh, to people who I know are very concerned about the issues that plague all of us. There's uh, almost as the, uh, the Torah tells us, ain't bias share ancient mace. There's no house that has not in some way been afflicted directly or indirectly by the kinds of questions that we're dealing with today. It's also rather auspicious that this uh, program today is taking place be between 9-11, between 9-11 and uh, Yom Noroyim, because it's the time of the year that we focus on the fragility of life and the issues of Kedusha Sechayim, the holiness of life. I want to bring to you some scenarios some are actually created, but very typical of the ones you and I encounter. And the other one is an actual real case study, which will really throw the focus on the issues we're talking about this morning. Sylvia was a woman in her 70s whose lung cancer had been in remission for several years. She's re she was recently diagnosed with a more aggressive, advanced stage cancer which metastasized to her brain. Her oncologist proposed a new round of chemotherapy, which might offer her a few more month of, months of life than she might expect otherwise. Now, Sylvia received chemotherapy during her first bout with cancer, and she didn't tolerate it very well, though, of course, it ultimately proved effective. For many months, she had no quality of life. She lost her hair constantly fatigued, had no appetite, lost weight. Now that her cancer has returned in a very aggressive way, she wondered, what about the possibilities of further chemotherapy when her long-term prognosis this time around is dire? Is it worth losing the limited amount of quality of time that she will have with her family? Her personal physician suggested hospice. So does Kedush Zechai mean that she has no other choice but to do everything known to medical science to keep herself alive, including chemotherapy, even if it will diminish her quality of life for her final days? Here's one I dealt with or deal with as a, in an ethics committee. Here's a case of Rose. Most women in the nursing home, a lot of the names are Rose, I think I said, Rabbi Kronberg can t testify. She was a 75-year-old widow with advanced Parkinson's. History of aspiration pneumonia. 
she was on a feeding tube because she could no longer eat on her own. She was declining mentally and physically. Hospice was recommended. Now here is the problem. There are no advanced directives. She has no healthcare proxy. The two daughters are conflicted over what they believe their mother would want. And the two daughters, one was Anne, a youngest daughter who lived near our facility, frequent visitor. She was really the, the most critical caregiver to her mother. And she told me, says, says Anne, quote, Mama once told me she never wanted to live like this. Even now, she pulls out the feeding tube if she's not restrained. Natalie is the oldest daughter. She lives in New Jersey. She's a periodic visitor. What does that mean? She comes to the main Yom Tovim, Mother's Day and her birthday. She says, food is always a big part of Mama's life. How can I let Mama starve to death? What do you do if you're an ethics committee? There is no healthcare proxy. We have these two diverse choices. Do we go with Anne, who seems to be the ongoing caregiver, no healthcare proxy, who says, mom doesn't want to live like this, this is no quality? Or do we say food is food? And are we starving my, my mother to death? The third case is an actual, is a real life case that took place in Eretz Yisrael, a landmark 1990 case that came before Judge Gorin of the Tel Aviv Regional Court. Benjamin Ayal was an ALS patient, Lou Gehrig's disease. Those of you who are not familiar with Lou Gehrig's disease, I hope you never become familiar with Lou Gehrig's disease. It is the worst possible death of all. It's a progressive neurological disease where the patient, after a period of time, cannot lift their arms, can't move any organ or limb in their body. The only thing they can do at, at, the end, at the end stage is blink their eyes. So maybe and sometimes we hope that it's a signal of what they really want. Why do I consider it the worst? Because it's, your mind is in solitary confinement in your body. That is what it's all about. So he petitioned the court, Benjamin Ayal, because he saw the way his disease was progressing, the etiology, and he petitioned the court that he does not want to be put on a ventilator, which would be the next step, which, would maintain, which maintains him, preserves him in this kind of life process for so many years to come. In Israel, before Dr. Steinberg made some advances in recent years with the Knesset, Israel was in paternal, medical paternalism. The doctor knows best. And the question was, does Mr. Ayal halachically have a right to say, I don't want to go on that ventilator, when it would give me years of life? And in this case, and we'll get to the outcome a little bit later on, maybe at the discussion time, Rabbi Lau, who was then the chief rabbi of Tel Aviv, presented this Shiloh to Rav Shlomo Zalman Arbach. And we'll talk about the outcome. This was that actual case. These are questions. Can I withhold, in certain cases, can I withdraw treatment in a situation of medical futility where no matter what you do, the patient is going to go on a progressive state of decline and die from this illness. And the patient is also suffering in some kind of pain. May that patient say, I refuse. Or does Kedusha Tachayim, the sanctity of life, demand that we do everything possible to keep him alive? So I'm calling this presentation this morning, Holding On or Letting Go, because that's really what it's all about. Do we hold on for life with aggressive treatment, or do we let go? Do we say, the, as Rabbi Tenley pointed out, the Malachim Mavis has already come and we should let go. Are we prolonging life or are we extending death? Uh, 
this is a disclaimer. I don't want anybody to come out of here or any session today, especially my session, and say Rabbi Shostak said, either to your Rav or to yourself about your own particular case, that this is the Psaq, halacha. Every patient is different. You wouldn't give the same medications to the same to the patient because there may be other kinds of complications, right? You wouldn't uh, give them the same medicine. There's a, we, a, a doctor, a physician has to take in all the drug interactions and everything else. When it comes to psaq halacha, it also has to be tailor-made to the patient. We dare not extrapolate from a newspaper, from an article, or from an oral presentation of psaq halacha because we're talking about dinin nefoshis. In the times of Chazal, we would have to have a Sanhedrin to deal with these issues, so it's very serious. Don't extrapolate based on anything you hear from me today, and that's why I, I'm going to ask you that any questions that you ask not be a, a personal question of Psaq, but only questions on the presentation I'll be happy to address. Kedusha Sechayim. Sanctity of life. It's a doctrine that regards each of our lives as, as holy and infinitely precious. Life is a gift of a Kodesh Baruch It's not a right or an entitlement. Rabbi Jacobowitz, who I would probably call, I think we all would agree, was the father of Jewish medical ethics as we know it today. He wrote the first book, I think it was in the 1950s. He talks about the Dushas Sechaim as the idea that every second of life is infinitely precious. You can't subdivide it, you can't value it, you can't weigh it. It's a part of infinity that we share with each other and with the Kurdish Borchu. And it's no value that can be attached to it. So that's the Kedusha of Chayim. I wanted to suggest to you for consideration this morning um, an understanding that I have of Kedusha Sechayim. We say in our davening, at the end, uh, it's last capital in Tehillim, Kuf Nun, Kol Hanishama Tahaluka, Every soul praises God. Chazal tell us, Al Kol Nishima Unishima, and every single breath of life. The words Nishama and Nishima, breath and soul, have an, have an etymological origin. They're related to each other, obviously. The neshama and the soul is the breath. What is this referring to? It goes according to the Sefer the Balatanya. Vayipach ba'apav nishmas chayim. God breathed into Adam Harishon the nishmas chayim. What is that? He breathed. He blew into him from his own breath, Kivayachal's own breath, into Adam Harishon, his breath. That breath was the neshama. The neshima is the neshama. And that is what we mean when we say every neshama is a chik elakami mal. We are all part of Hashem because our neshama comes from God's neshima. And therefore, that I believe is simply put, each and every one of us in this world are part of God. Now, I want to contrast this. It says over here, life is a gift of God, not a right or an entitlement. Today, there is a right to live, right, and a right to die. It's my body. It's my life. I can do what I please with it. In medical ethics today, we have a principle of patient autonomy. I can make decisions. I can decide what treatments I want, and I can refuse treatments I do not want. It's not a gift. It's an entitlement. It's a right. Let me give you some illustrations of how this plays out in modern society. Governor Richard D. Lamb of Colorado said in 1984, because of the scarcity of medical facilities and treatments, he says, elderly people who are terminally ill have the, quote, duty to die and get out of the way, end quote. 
He, by the way, he was Ross Perot's running mate. Some of you may remember. Character. You all are familiar with uh, Dr. Kevorkian. And then in 1990, he killed a patient with the death machine, right? He created to put people to death. Now, I, just as an aside, Dr. Kevorkian comes from Michigan. And I also come from Michigan. I'm not a landsman of his, in that sense. But many years ago when I was in Michigan, they had a referendum. What do you call native pe people who live in Michigan? New Yorkers, New Yorkers, Pennsylvanians. What do you call people who live in Michigan? Oh, there were two choices. Either Michiganers or Michiganders. Okay. Fortunately for the Jews in Michigan, they decided on Michigander. But when we speak about Dr. Kevorkian, I guarantee you he's a Michiganer. Now, there was a book also, you may remember this, in the 1990s, right? By Derek Humphrey, a bestseller of the New York Times. You know what it's called? Final Exit. You know what it was all about? A suicide manual. Now, there are reasonable people that were mentioned before, such as Dr. Tom Timothy Quill, upstate New York, who makes an impassioned argument for physician-assisted suicide. But I can tell you that this is where it has led to. If there's a right to live, it's an entitlement. I own my body. I control my life. I can decide when I want my life to end. It's up to me. And this week, of course, we realize that it's not so simple. Human life is sacred. Even those of encephalitic, newborns, water on the brain, severely developmentally disabled children, elders with advanced dementia, and end-stage dementia have, by virtue of their very existence, intrinsic value and worth, and their lives may not be prematurely terminated. They are alive. Sadly, tragically, they have very little or no quality of life, but they're definitely alive, and we have no right whatsoever to terminate them prematurely. This picture speaks for itself. Life has intrinsic value, and I think all of America realized on this one day that the world that we knew will never be the same again. And that is true in the case of one losing a loved one. This leads us to why it's so important to save lives. It's a supreme value in, in, in Yiddishkeit. Bikuach Nefesh, you're all familiar with this. If a building collapses on Shabbos, Halacha directs us to make every effort to make save possible survivors even if by the, this results in desecrating the Shabbos by removing rubble and debris, which is the Malacha and Shabbos. Chil the Shabbos, we all know, Pikuach Nefesh overrides everything. But there's another nuance here, a very critical nuance in the situation, which really goes to Alacha. Even if it is highly unlikely that there are any survivors, Halacha boldly declares, we disregard the statistical majority. That is, the majority that there are any survivors when it's a matter of saving lives. If there would be Jewish crews there on 9-11 and on the days there afterwards, they would be obligated, and if one of those days were Shabbos, they would be obligated to dig, degree, go into their, uh, their, go into their machinery, and pick up all those bricks and rubble to find the Jewish survivor even on Shabbos. What are the chances of anybody surviving a, such a collapse, coming out of that alive? Very small. Halacha tells us we don't look at the majority. Dr. Fred Rosner, many years ago, it's in 1989, wrote in the Annals of Eternal Medicine. It was about doing CPR on elderly patients. Okay. We all know that elderly patients who are very 
compromised because of their medical condition. They don't really do very well with CPR. By the way, CPR has to be described in very vivid terms. CPR, colon, colon, uh, cardiac pulmonary resuscitation, and the, what it really means is when they do the compression, they break ribs, frail ribs of elderly people. It's very, it's very possible. It's a very serious invasion of the body. If they survive that CPR, they may live. What percentage live? 3%? Very, very small percentage. I remember the statistics from many years ago. But you know something, Dr. Rosner writes? Who's to say that that individual is not part of the 3%? We believe in miracles sometimes, that miracles do happen, and some we don't rely on miracles, but we have to allow the possibility for a miracle to take effect. So, Ein Hochen, B'Kuch Nefesh Acharov says, we don't disregard the majority that most of the people died under the avalanche of the building collapse, or that most elderly people will not survive CPR and have any quality of life. You may be part of the 3% who will survive and have some quality. But it goes a step further. We're obliged to rescue an accident survivor whose skull is crushed and may only live for a few minutes. He can't say be doing. His every breath, we believe, is infinitely precious. We must do so. In other words, and I want to refer you to some Gemara's that you're familiar with in Hilchah Shabbos. You know the concept of Chalel Alov Shabbos Aches Kidei Sheyishmuru or Yishmur Shabbos Harbei. You're allowed to be Mechal one Shabbos to save a life in order to live for many Shabboses, to observe those Shabboses. Well, this Tinoch, this infant whose brain is crushed, there's no question that he will never be able to observe Shabbos. But he's alive. He's alive. You have to save him. He can't save Vidui. He's not going to be able to come into the category of doing, ever doing mitzvahs. Yet you have to save his life. This is the basis, and we're going to go into the Pesachalochah towards the end, of the post will say life is infinitely precious no matter what. Everything must be done. Another source for the postgame, we're going to see in a second, who say that everything must be done in all situations, is something that Rabbi Tendler talked about, but I want to go, we're going to go into it a little more in depth. The Maridim of Rabbi Hanina ben Teradion, that uh, we hear about this, uh, during Ele Esker and Yom Kippur, Musa, Asura Harugi Malchus, they discovered Rabbi Hanina engaged in Torah study and gathered a large assembly to teach. He was clutching a safer Torah. They wrapped him in the scroll, ignited a vampire around him, placed tufts of wool drenched in water upon him so he would not die quickly. His student asked him, beautiful, beautiful thing, Rabbi, what do you envision? He replied, the parchment burns, but the letters fly in the air. You too should open your mouth to consume the fire so that you may hasten your death. Open your mouth so you can die quicker. He replied, Better he that gave it should take it. I cannot expedite my death. The executioner cried, Rabbi, if I increase the flame and remove the wool from your chest, will you bring me to the world to come? The rabbi swore to him, and he increased the flame removed the wool, and his soul departed quickly. Let's analyze what happened over here. Rabbi Hanina refused to open his mouth to inhale the fire. What would that be? It's what we call in halacha an act of commission or a kumba'ase, which would hasten his death. One is not allowed to prematurely, and this is what, this is what we learn from this story from Rabbi Hanina. One is not allowed to prematurely hasten their death. You cannot open your mouth so you'll die quicker, even though death is inevitable, because every moment of life is precious. 
but he did acquiesce to the executioner's actions to allow him to increase the flame and removing the wool. Now, on Rabhani's part, that was a Shebi al He didn't do anything. He just allowed things to happen around him. The wool was removed from his chest, right? And uh, the flame was increased. He didn't do anything, right? Period. On his own. He didn't open his mouth. Things didn't do anything. Sheba al And you might say the only one who was a kumbase was in the part of the executioner, right? He increased the flame. And Rav Moshe Feinstein has interesting tshuva if he's chayav misa for what he did. Okay, assuming he would be Jewish. Sanctity of life, therefore, we see the, this, these two cases, both the case of Shabbos, of the Mapolis, of a building collapse on Shabbos, as well as the case of Rechim ben Teradin, to demonstrate to us that Kedusha Sachayim is extremely important, that everything must be done to save the person, even if there is no quality of life left whatsoever, life is infinitely precious. This is one stream in halacha. One might not move or touch a morbid patient unless absolutely necessary, as Rabbi Tullin pointed out, because it may hasten his death. We're talking about an individual at the end stage who's morbid, who's a gosase. The dying person's soul is like a flickering candle where the slightest touch might extinguish it. Now here's the question that we're dealing with today. I'm going to go to the other shitas in a few minutes. Does sanity of life mean that life is so precious that one may never refuse available life support interventions? If life is sacred, there are many choices here. There is CPR, very aggressive invasive treatment. Some might describe this as extraordinary care for certain kinds of populations of patients. Feeding tubes, and we talk about are feeding tubes food or are they medicine? Ventilators, antibiotics. Must they always be administered? Is it like food? Dialysis, a very, very difficult process that the person must go undergo every week for the kidney problems. Chemotherapy, we talked about. Pacemakers. Pacemakers is a low-risk, high-benefit kind of procedure. I want to get into that in a second. And transfusions, also apparently, uh, assuming that the blood is properly checked and, and, and uh, it's okay, we say that it, uh, is, is it may be appropriate. Again, low-risk, high-benefit. There's what we call in medical ethics, and Halacha as well acknowledges this, a be- risk-benefit ratio, right? You have to sort of weigh, is, are the benefits of this procedure that we're about to do, does it outweigh, outweigh the risks? For example, even feeding tubes. In a certain population, there are side effects. There's research and there's studies to indicate that there's a certain amount of risk. A nasal gastric tube, which is inserted in the nose, almost no risk. The peg, put in the stomach, much risk. For some in the population. Okay? Uh, pacemakers, high benefit, low risk. What about uh, an amputation of a diabetic, where the one limb is, he's already had one limb removed, and now the second limb becomes gangrenous? Or is he, may he refuse? He says, I want to die at least with one of my legs. Can he refuse? Even though we know that if he does undergo the amputation, he can live for many years. These are all questions. Uh, let me just tell you that when it comes to deciding whether it's a high risk or benefit, we do, we do take into concern statistics. But let's not be carried away by statistics. Rabbi Dr. Abraham Tversky tells the story of a person who had serious brain disease, and the only cure would be surgery with a high mortality risk. So he went to the top neurosurgeon for this advice because he wanted him to be a surgeon. And he said, tell me, doctor, 
What are my chances of surviving the surgery and having a good life? Doctor says, the truth of the matter is that nine out of 10 patients who undergo this surgery die. But here's the good news, you're my 10th patient. The story of Rebbe is a source for those who say that yes, life is critical, it's paramount, but there are opportunities, there are times when a person can refuse medical care. And you're familiar with the story, it's in Ketubot, Kuftalad Amid Aleph. Rebbe Huda the Prince, Rebbe, who was dying of fatal gastrointestinal disease. Now, I have curiosity, because I'm involved in the field, I, just, I went to some gastroenterologists, and I asked them, what kind of disease did Rebbe have? Because he didn't die, it seems, from physical pain. According to Rashi, and Rebbe Feinstein is very uh, exacting and medallic in the Rashi over there, in the Gomorrah over there, that he was, that what really upset Rebbe was the fact he couldn't put on tefillin every day because he had to go to the bathroom so frequently. So it was a spiritual angst in Rebbe's case. That was his real pain. So they said to me, maybe Rebbe was suffering from dysentery, which is not accompanied by end-stage pain, as opposed to Crohn's disease or colon cancer, which may have, very much have pain. Or you could say the Rebbe did have physical pain, not definitive, but uh, the spiritual angst was the pain that really bothered him. Okay? Now, what are we, what's the halacha, sakalacha for the promotion, other poskim? Since the Talmud doesn't criticize her conduct or in any way reject it, the Ran in Adoram, Daf Mem Amid Aleph, concludes, quote, there are times when one should pray for the sick to die, such as when the sick one is suffering greatly from his malady and his condition is terminal. I also want to point out, you know, people wonder today, where did this whole do we have any basis in halacha for a healthcare proxy to make decisions on behalf of a patient? Does that person have to be a family member? What do we see from this Gemara? Who was the one who made the decision to stop the prayers? It was none other than Rebbe's maidservant. She was in the Yeshua or wherever she was, she threw down a, a pot. The Rebbe's student stopped praying for him. Right? And Rebbe died. The analysis of this case is that since Rebbe was suffering great spiritual angst and physical pain, it was permissible to discontinue his metaphysical life support of his students' prayers which were impeding their Rebbe's death. And Rabbi Rabbeinu Nisim's ruling that end-stage suffering warrants praying for death serves as the precedent for hospice and aggressive pain management even when it may depress respiration and hasten death. Here's a story that uh, Rabbi Talmud referred to. The very pious woman who prayed daily in the synagogue found life to be unbearable, and she sought rabbinic guidance and was advised not to pray for three days. She followed this advice, and on the third day she took ill and died. And also in reference to the Gemara in Sotolam and Babam Beis, the Anshe Luz, who went out of town. So we see the people, elderly people, who don't want to live anymore. Certainly, if not proactively, Certainly, Besheva Altas did not have to seek further medical interventions to keep them alive when their lives are so miserable. Let's go to the Psach Halacha now. Rabbi Yoshev. Rabbi Yoshev, uh, who is the, the modern post the, the current contemporary Gadol Hador post in Eretz Yisrael, learns from the, the case of Shabbos. And uh, I'm going to talk about the sources now for his position. And its position is similar to that of, of Shlomo Zalman Arbach. He says, saving and preserving life derives from its intrinsic value. Even the life of a dying person must be preserved, regardless of its duration or quality. That little Tinoch, whose skull was crushed, is still very much alive. It's not, he's not going to live very long. Certainly no quality of life, no vidui, no opportunity ever to perform mitzvahs. 
But right now, Bashir Husham, is he alive? Yes. You must do everything known to medical science to keep him alive till the very end. Rav Shlomo Zaman Arba, taking his cue from the story of Rabbi Hanina, Radion, who he saw was in great pain to the very end and still refused to open his mouth, rules that dying patients suffering from metastatic cancer must receive oxygen, nutrition, and hydration, blood transfusions, and antibiotics, all basic care. He's referring specifically to oral antibiotics even if he is suffering and in great pain. Okay. That is his source. Now, let me just read to you from where his sources are. Because his sources are based on the Shrut Yaakov, a, 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 who writes that if they discover the victim is alive, though his brain is crushed, and he will only be able to live for a brief period, what we call chayesha in halacha, hourly life, we must remove the debris and afford him this brief time. As it says in Tractate Smachov, one who closes the eyes of the dying ghosts is reckoned as he takes his life. The Chavetz Chaim in his commentary, Bir Allah declares that one whose skull is crushed is also classified as a dying patient. Now I want to tell you, and I, I, maybe we'll talk about this at the end, this is a critical statement of Mr. Brewer in Bir Alacha. He equates saving the life of the person under the building that collapsed to a dying patient in a hospital. And as in fact, he says he's even worse because he doesn't even have the minutest chance of survival. At least the patient in the hospital, hospital has some chances of survival. But nevertheless, we save his life even for a brief period because Chaye Shah is Chayim. It's life. We must do everything possible. However, let us go to Ramosha. I must say Ramosha, Rabdovid, Rabushul Shafter are all most I would say if you want to classify it's the Israeli postkin and the modern and the American postkin. They are found the line of Rav Moshe who says the following. Dying patients who are in pain and cannot be cured may refuse medications. A physician may administer morphine and other opioids to relieve pain. We have a case here on Oxycontin on the scribe here. Even though this may depress the patient's respiration. It's called the double effect. Okay. Let me just quote Ramosha. Thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. Rabbi Feinstein's ruling not to feed, thank you, to feed a dying patient against his will refers to an alert patient who might experience psychotrauma if his wishes are reversed. However, should he become comatose, we may still not treat him against his previously expressed wishes. Quote, in a situation where he is suffering and there is no known cure, even to ease his suffering. In other words, it's okay to continue medication if you can do one or two things. Reverse the outcome of his illness or treat his pain. Then you can continue giving it. But if you can't treat his pain and you can't reverse the outcome, Ramosha says, you're under no obligation to continue any treatment. And, and it's then in such an instant, people would rather die than live such a life of suffering. And even where it would be impossible to ascertain the patient's wishes, we may presume that the patient would not want further treatment and there's no obligation to heal him. We're coming towards the end of our presentation, so we have more than ample time for questions. We talked about the distinction between withdrawing and withholding treatment. Withholding means I'm not going to start treatment. I'm not going to put the person on a ventilator. I'm not going to initiate chemotherapy. I'm not going to positively 
introduce new treatment. That's called with that, that's called uh, withholding treatment, right? Withdrawing treatment means if the treatment's already in progress. Pardon me. If the treatment's already in progress. I I, I, I misspoke. If the treatment's already in progress and it's life support, such as a person on a ventilator who will die imminently after you quote pull the plug. We're going to see about this in a second. That's called a terminal wing. Then we make this distinction. And we say, no, you can't do it. One involves not doing anything, not initiating treatment. That's a sheva al-tasa. And pulling the plug, stopping treatment is a kumbase. In American law, there's no distinction between the two. I, I won't go into that right now unless you're interested. We're going to move along. A terminally ill-suffering patient may withhold or refuse life support and opt for hospice-aggressive pain management. And the case of Benjamin Ayal, the ALS patient, who did not want to be put on a ventilator because he, he would be remaining in a life of eternal pain and also you, you may not, with, you can, you can, you, with, over there, you can opt for a hospice, aggressive pain management, but you may not withdraw the ongoing life support by pulling the plug. The, the medical term is terminal wean, weaning him from the ventilator. Very innocuous term. It means literally stopping him from breathing at least, and making, relying on him breathing on his own. Physicians, this will deal to the question of these two daughters deciding whether is the feeding tube that which a mother has in place, is it food or is it medicine? Ashlama Zaman says, artificial nutrition hydration is food, must always be provided, it cannot be withheld or withdrawn. Um, what? That's for Shlomo Zalman, right? On the right side, hand side, we have Ramosha, who's a dying patient who refuses to eat and has refused artificial nutrition hydration in advance directive, should not be compelled to be put on a, a feeding tube. Yet this stage is akin to a medicine which may be withheld. And now that we're ending on the topic that we all like, since we're going to lunch momentarily, food for thought. This for, and this is for discussion. And now I, yeah, I think we have ample time for discussion, about 15, 20 minutes now, right? 12.45, right? So, Baruch Hashem, we'll have the opportunity to release some, discuss some of the issues and get some clarification. <clears throat> if a patient is dying from end-stage Parkinson's and refuses to eat, as we can, in the case of Anne, Rose, the mother, what is the cause of her death? Is it Parkinson's or malnutrition? Is the feed too prolonging her death or really extending her life? Anybody want to think about some of these things? Any questions? Please. Uh, Daphne, want to talk to you? I can't hear you. Okay, so your question, let me, in case those people cannot hear it, the question really is, you understand that in the last few days of a person's life, they stop eating anyways, and they really are not, that is part of the natural physiological process of dying, to stop eating. And that is absolutely correct. The body shuts down. And so, what does it mean when, when this daughter Natalie wants to say, my mother, food was very important to her, I'm starving her to death. Does the patient feel pain? Because you don't have any absence of food. So I'm, gonna, I'm, not, I'm, not a doc, I'm not a physician. So I can explain things the way you and I understand it as non, non-physicians. I think very physiologically it makes a lot of sense. People who are end stage, who are dying, they are lying dormant in their beds. They're not moving around. That means they're not burning any calories, right? They have, so they're not hungry. 
the way you and I are hungry, because we're, even if you're a couch potato, you still got to get up to turn off the TV set or turn it on or what. If you have remote control, you don't have to even do that, right? But whatever it may be, right, you got to move around. But a person who's dying has to be re repositioned in their bed frequently because they're going to get the cubitide, they're going to get bed sores. They're not burning calories. They don't feel hunger. There's research demonstrating this in the Journal of Clinical Ethics and other journals. They've done research. They don't feel pain. Are you starving your mother to death? She would probably stop eating, as you said, anyways. And besides, another thing. Since you're not burning calories, what happens when you start feeding? You mentioned another point. You're putting food into them which they can't tolerate because you're only, your food is your fuel that burns. But if, what happens if you don't need the fuel? It just builds up, backs up, and, come, and, and causes infection in the feeding tube sometimes. So it's not so simple. It's not so simple. Uh, and Rabbi David Feinstein, I heard this from Rabbi Tendler as well, says the usual difference between, would you say, for example, pulling out the feeding tube, is that withdrawal, like pulling the plug? Or would you say that maybe not refilling the feeding tube, withholding is what's taking place here. Is it really the same thing? And they say, no, this is not feeding. This is medicine at the end stage. It's not helping. If anything, as you pointed out, it really is possibly hurting the patient, detrimental. Any other questions? Going back to your Excellent question. Uh, Ramosha writes in the tshuva, one area of halacha seems pretty clear. When you have a minor child, Ramosha finds writes in halacha that the parents make the decisions on behalf of the minor. That's pretty obvious. In a situation where there's only one child or one caregiver, we, now in other states, in other states, next of kin. But who's next of kin? Is it the oldest daughter? In this case, would it be Natalie or Anne? Which one of the daughters are going to make the decision for the mother rose? How do you, but more importantly, as a chair of an ethics committee, these two daughters have to live together, right? And they, you know, they have to live with their conscience and, and doing the right thing for their mother. What is the role of the ethics committee? We don't make decisions for people. That's not what ethics committees do. They guide the people to come to a decision of what they believe their mother would have wanted. They have to act in the best interest of their mother, not in their own personal self-interest. A lot of times, family members, if there's no advanced directives, will act in their own personal interest. You have to make sure that they're not acting out of guilt, they're not acting out of uh, their preconceived notion of what they believe halacha has to be. They must do what their mother really wanted and represent her wishes. In New York State, as Dr. Powell pointed out, we require clear and convincing evidence when it comes to feeding tubes. Ironically, in New York State, not when it comes to, not when it comes to getting off a ventilator. No, nope. as long as the patient says, or they think the patient said, I don't want to be on the vent, you can do a terminal wean. But when it comes to feeding, which is like basic care, they consider it more basic even than breathing. I can't figure that one out. But feeding, you must have clear and convincing evidence of the patient's wishes uh, not to want to be fed. Okay. Say, what, what do you mean by advanced warning? What are what are advanced directives? I can't I can't hear you. We speak to them. Okay, here's, here's a problem. You know, I was alluded to in, in um, the first presentation before by Dr. Pop. In America, in the Jewish community, elderly people don't ever talk about their dying. Why? 
an eye in horror. I don't want to talk about it. If I don't talk about it, I'm not going to die. I'll worry about it when I get close. Right? The word cancer is not referred to as cancer. What is it referred to? Yenem machla. That disease. Right? They don't even want to refer to it because it's, it's like, in Sloan Kettering they say cancer is a word, not a sentence. But for many people, when they hear the word cancer, it's a death sentence. So we have this, we have this aversion because of Ayn Hora, Al-Tiftach Pelasotan, or any other kind of Baba Maisa, I don't want to talk about it. But it's a tremendous amount of guilt that they lay on their children and the ones who are going to decide for them because if you don't know what your mother wanted, you, are you aggressive or do you go to hospice? I don't want any tubes in me. I don't want to be like that. What do the tubes mean? Remove the catheter? Remove the feeding tube? Remove the cannula? The oxygen tubes in the nose? What does it mean? I don't want to be on tubes. It's so important. The biggest chesed that you can do for your children and for the, those who come after you and your loved ones, even young people, I do this with my medical students, I put them through the exercise at Stony Brook of going to get their own healthcare practice and filling it out. I said, I don't really not want to know what you want to do. Who are you entrusting for your medical decisions? And I, what kind of a process was it for you as a young person getting healthcare proxies? He said, future doctors. I want to go and with the compassion feel what it's like to be a patient. And by the way, doctors are also patients. Okay. So does that answer your question? Yes. Right. Okay, maybe, maybe speak more into the microphone. I don't know if everybody can hear you. Put, your, put the microphone closer to your mouth. Yeah, and, and this, this person, this is the final episode of your life. The family, God of their love, is pushing for everything to be done, including my seat care. From that perspective, we know the law, we know the arguments. It's totally inappropriate. They want, they want to do a, a aggressive intervention at the last... This is the problem... This is the problem that uh, Dr. Pop and Rabbi Tender alluded to. And that is, it's, it's critical. And as chaplains, we deal with this all the time, because um, we're bottom chaplains, right? We deal with end-of-life issues. That's how I got into this whole field. Just Derek Haggad many, many years ago in the early 90s, because I saw all these shadows that I was dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis. But most Rabbonim have to, if we want to pass in this area, like they would pass in any area, you must become clinically knowledgeable and you need to have the doctor educate you about the case. If you don't understand something, ask. How do our gadolin pass If you haven't seen the inside of a chicken, you don't know the body parts of a chicken, you can't, in the olden days, today we get everything, you already you know. There's no, no, no shallots today, right? But the olden days when they used to have the town shochet and used to bring it to a rub, he had to know the anatomy of a chicken to pass him. So, so when there's a cute story that I told about a rub, you know, uh, he, he didn't really understand whether it was a syrup or not. He said, uh, oh, they showed him the puppet. Oh, he says, that's the puppet? The halika puppet. In other words, he didn't realize, he didn't know what the, what the body parts were all about. You can't be a rub who passes on these kinds of matters unless you are knowledgeable or make yourself knowledgeable as much as possible and are familiar with the postcard. So... Unfortunately, and many, many Rabbanim feel, and there's a whole school of Rabbanim out there who say, I only go, everything must be done. There's no opportunity to refuse any kind of medical treatment at any stage. And at this stage, even Rav Shlomo Zalman will say, where it's, where it's already at the very end, the person's in pain, we're talking at the go-say stage, stop. Why take the blood pressure? 
Why take, do blood tests on a person who is, you're not going to do a treat anyways? Right? It makes no sense. Yet, hospitals do it because they have to get reimbursed. But really, there's no purpose to it. Why do you have to mooch it? I hope that answers your question. Okay, my good friend from um, the other Yeah. No, no. Oh, thank you very much. Okay, wait, wait, wait. People have a wrong impression of hospice. And thank you for, uh, thank you very much for bringing that to my attention. This is Rabbi Kinsbrunner, who is uh, in the forefront of Vitas uh, with his father, uh, which is the only, I believe, largest, certainly, for-profit hospice in the United States. So let me, let me just uh, give you an, uh, some background. That hospice doesn't mean I'm letting, okay, I'm not doing anything anymore, no more medical interventions whatsoever. I'm just letting the patient die. I'm giving him some nursing care, some, and that's it, just to keep him comfortable. No, it is very aggressive. Aggressive pain management. You know, today pain control, Baruch Hashem, by and large, we can control most pain. So, aggressive pain management, symptom relief are two aspects of hospice as well. I'm not talking about all the psychological and the, the spiritual piece and the, the, brief, the bereavement therapy for the family and all the other things that come with hospice and the nurses and the companions and the volunteers and all the wonderful things that hospice does. Hospice, if you're ever involved with hospice, you, can't wonder, you, can want, you wonder how the world could ever live without it. That's the way people were meant to die. Not in an ICU, CCU, on tubes, and matrinzich and everything else, you know, and that's not the way it was met. That's never was ever. That's not these modern technologies that we have today. Going back to CPR, right? Transplant surgery. Um, you name it. Were not around 60 years ago. Feeding tubes. They weren't around. What happened? Nature took its course, the mouths of mothers came. Today, because of the advanced technologies and the original cases of Kieran and Quinlan, we got all these, we can say, okay, now we keep people alive when they're really not alive. Their physicians vegetative say, yes, they're alive, logically, but they have certainly no quality of life. Must we do everything to keep them alive? Are we prolonging life or are we extending death? The hospital says, when we realize that it's futile, six months are left for the person to live, and they're in pain, they may opt for hospice for pain management, symptom relief, and whatever is necessary. Thank you. Any more questions? Okay. Okay, we, 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 we operate under a false pretense. We think that if we don't tell the patient you're really dying, they don't know they're dying. That's a fallacy. They, they know they're dying, but they don't want to tell the children they're dying because they don't want to upset the children. It's, it's like a little charade, a little game that they play. The family doesn't want to say, oh no, you know, only, your days are numbered. And the patient says, I don't want to give the guilt to my children. I'm dying. I know how bad it is. I don't want to share it with them. I don't want them to suffer. So both don't talk about it openly. And that is a critical point. But, there, but nine out of ten patients who are dying know they're dying. If they're alert. If they're alert and oriented, they know they're dying. I want to close with one thought. Because it's a beautiful thought to to bring it to the end from Rabbi Waldenberg in Tzitz Eliezer. He says, Ace Loletis, the Ace 
lamus. There's a time to be born and a time to die. Why doesn't it say es lichyot? There's a time to live. It's, isn't, isn't life the opposite of death? It should say es lichyot for es lamus. Why es lettuce? So Waldenberg says, because the truth of the matter is, we don't have we have no rights to life. We're born in this world and it's a gift. And we we can't choose to get off the merry-go-round of life and die when we want to. You die when God decides He's ready for you, no matter what. This is how we have to think of it. We have to understand that a Kodesh Baruch is in control. We have the greatest gift of all. It's a matana. Let's care for it wisely. Thank you very much.